So this morning I'm going to be preaching from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 44. And let me go ahead and pray, and I'm going to use a, a collect from the Anglican Church. It is, Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And I have a confession of sorts to make. I love dirt. My earliest thoughts of my life are playing outside in the dirt. I would be outside playing in the dirt from sunup to sundown, I would dig holes and make mounds of dirt and play with my Tonka trucks and tractors. And my parents would have to drag me in when it was time for dinner or it was just too dark to be outside. My hands were always uh, so dried out and chapped and cracked that my mom would put Vaseline on them and then she'd put a sock over them. I'd have to sleep like that, which helped a little bit, but not too much. And then when I was a young teenager, a friend and me, myself, worked in an adobe brick factory. Now, I use the term factory lightly. It was more of a huge flat field with a small mountain of dirt and a pit where the adobe mud was mixed. And the way that the bricks were made was a large front loader would scoop up mud from the pit and it would pour it into wooden molds on the ground and then the mud would be allowed to dry in the sun, and then they would take the molds off. Now, our job was to then go to every brick and scrape the rough edges off of the bricks. Now, we were paid about one penny per brick. And do you know how many bricks that you have to clean to earn $10? Our boss didn't, because he wasn't very good at math. But, you know, we would earn maybe $10 for doing that for a week. And, uh, you know, to us that seemed like a fortune. But um, now, I love the dirt, but I never thought of dirt as being holy. When we'd go to church, my mom would always make sure that I didn't have any dirt on my clothes. And she always made me turn out my pockets because... Along with dirt, I sometimes would have a frog or a grasshopper or a worm because you never knew when you had to go fishing in New Mexico with all the water there, right? But she didn't want me to drag any dirt into church. Now, there's one place in New Mexico called the Santuario de Chimayo where they have a shrine and they have a hole in the ground. The earth in this hole is supposed to be holy and to perform miracles. So during Lent and Easter, pilgrims walked from Santa Fe to this chapel to get this, this dirt that was holy. Now, many years ago, I saw a video teaching by R.C. Sproul on holiness. And he was speaking of the time when Israel had been using the Ark of Covenant as a sort of good luck charm. And they were carrying the Ark in a way that they were not supposed to transport it. And so from First Chronicles chapter 13, it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah, 
and Ahlo were driving the cart, and David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And that day, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So the ark was in danger of falling off this cart, and Uzzah thought that he would help, and so he extended his hand to keep the ark on the cart. However, as soon as his hand touched the ark, he was struck dead by God. Why would God do that? Uzzah's mistake was that he thought that his hand was holier than the dirt on the ground, but in fact he was being disobedient to God's clear commands. Men were disobedient, but the dirt was very obedient. Dirt did exactly what dirt was supposed to do, and so in a sense it was much holier than Uzzah or any man. Now in the book of Jeremiah, much of the text to this point speaks of the disobedience and sin of God's chosen people and God's judgments upon them. There's also a glimpse into Jeremiah's personal life and his thoughts and feelings. Much more than any other prophet, we get to know Jeremiah. There's then an interlude in chapters 30 through 33, which is sometimes referred to as a book of comfort, where God reveals a new covenant that he's going to establish with his people. The old covenant, in a sense, worked from the outside in, but the new covenant would work from the inside out. God would take out the stony hearts of the people and then give them hearts of flesh, and he would write his word on their hearts. Now, in chapter 32, there's this passage that just seems out of place. We're reading about all the terrible sins and judgments and then we are comforted by this glimpse of the new covenant. Israel is in an existential crisis, and then Jeremiah decides to buy some land. Now, we do have to be careful not to misuse passages like this and make them into refrigerator sermons. By this I mean not taking promises and judgments meant specifically for the nation Israel and personalizing them. However, we also need to remember that all scripture is in the proper sense applicable to us. Romans 15:4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let's look at verses 1 through 5, and we see in verses 1 through 15 the purchase that Jeremiah makes. And in verses 1 through 5, we see the king's question. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. 
For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So here we see that the Chaldeans, Babylon, that they are at the gates. They are getting ready to besiege the Jerusalem. Jeremiah is in prison because the, he was going and the king thought that he had betrayed him and that he was being a traitor, so he imprisoned him in the, in the court there. And this was, he was going to have a much worse imprisonment, but here he is, he is captive. And the king is asking Jeremiah, why do you keep saying bad things about me? And why do you keep preaching so negative? All of these other prophets are telling me the things that I want to hear. But you keep telling me bad things. And then as we get into verses 6 through 8, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is Anathoth at, in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now, Anathoth was, was a small village just a few miles from Jerusalem, but it was Jeremiah's homeland. It was where his people came from. So he receives this word from the Lord and he's offered his uncle's field in Anatoth. Now, one of the problems with Anatoth is it's under the control of the Chaldeans. And Anatoth at his, at his best is nothing to brag about. And Jeremiah knows in his heart that he's never going to see that land or live in that land again. But Jeremiah knows that this is the word of the Lord. Now this is what God has said to him. And we don't know how much time there is between verse 8 and 9. But in verse 9 we see... It says, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and the conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. Then I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, 
both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So God has spoken to him. The thing that God told him has come to pass. Jeremiah does exactly what he's supposed to. He buys the land for 17 shekels of silver. He signs a deed. He seals it. He makes sure he has witnesses. He hands over the money. And he tells Baruch to make sure that these copies are, are kept safe for a long time. And then God says, houses and fields and vineyards shall, be again, shall again be bought in this land. If, if it finished there, that would have been good. But just like anybody, even holy prophets, they think, what did I do? You know, like just about a month ago, you know, my, one of my vice presidents came and told me, you know, this little city up, you know, just outside of Denver, North Glen, they want a shelter. Do you think we can open up a shelter in a month? And everything in me said, no, no, no. I could hardly even have enough staff to keep the shelters open that I have now. And in my mind and in my heart, it was like, you got to be kidding. Of course, it's a vice president. I can't say that. But, but then out of my mouth, I said, sure, we can do it. And I could have sworn there was somebody else talking because it was not me. And up to that day, we had the just, I, so we appointed somebody to oversee that shelter. And... There was one person, that's how much staff we had to run that shelter. And of course, you know, because I'm such a great man of faith, I said, we'll, God, we'll be all right, God will provide. I didn't really believe it, but I said it. And God did. And somehow we're managing to run another shelter that we don't have the people to run it. We didn't even have a the money or the contract or anything. It just, this is the day, open the shelter. So as Jeremiah is thinking about this, he's bought this and he's then, he starts to have doubts. What did I do? In verse 16, it says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. 
You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it's as if he's reminding himself that God is the creator. Nothing is too hard for God. God shows his steadfast love, his loving kindness. He does signs and wonders. He delivers his people out of Egypt. God gave them this land. But you can't help but wonder. God does all of these great and mighty things, but he tells me, to buy this piece of land that the enemy has control over. What is, what is the purpose of this? Then he goes on to the reality of Israel's disobedience in verse 23. It says, they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. So Israel accepted the gift. They accepted the land, the land of milk and honey. But Israel did not obey God's voice. They did not walk in God's law. And so God then fulfilled the rest of the contract, the covenant. If you do these things, this will happen. If you don't do these things, then this will happen. And they were disobedient. And God began to bring to pass the things that he told them would happen if they disobeyed, and disaster came upon them. So in verse 24, we see the reality of judgment. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. So there are siege mounds. They're, you know, they're building mounds so that they can come into the city, past the walls, where they can break down the walls, where the enemy can come in. He's saying there's war. Now, the Assyrians had fallen. Egypt had come up. They had fallen. Now Babylon was coming. And Egypt was trying to make a comeback. But there was war. And Israel kept playing on the wrong side instead of listening to what he was telling them to do because he kept telling them, just surrender. Because you're not fighting against Babylon, you're fighting against God. Just surrender. But they refuse to do that. So he, then he talks about famine. You know, and that is something that you would think at our day and age we would be done with. But we still see it. I mean, we see a, a country like Afghanistan where 90 to 95% of the people are in danger of starving to death. And then he talks about pestilence, which is another word for saying a contagious, infectious disease. What you 
spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it, we see it. And so in verse 25, we see Jeremiah, it's like he sees the reality of the situation. He says, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses. Even though the city is given into the hand of Babylon, the Chaldeans, yet you said, and look at this, So the Lord replies to Jeremiah in verse 26. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And he says Jeremiah's words back to him. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? In verse 28, we get a reminder that God is giving the city to the Chaldeans. So God is saying, I'm the God of all flesh. There's, is there anything too hard for me? And then in verse 28, he says, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. The Chaldeans are going to come and burn this city to the ground. And then in verses 30 through 35, God gives him a reminder of why he is turning over this city. He says, the children of Israel, the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all of the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So what is he saying? They've done, Israel has done evil. They provoked him to anger. They turned their back to him. They have committed abominations. In other words, they have disgusted God. But then as we go on to verses 36 through 44, we see the Lord's promise. And he says, in verse 36, he says, 
So he's just finished talking to them about this abomination. Then he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. I Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safely, safety and, I shall, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So God has told them why he was turning them over to Chaldeans, but then he, he gives his promise and he says, I will bring them back. I will make sure they dwell in safety. Then he says, I will be their God and they will be my people because their hearts will belong to me. And I will give them an everlasting covenant. And the fear of me will be inside of them. And he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in faithfulness in this land. Then he goes on in verse 42 and he says, For thus says the Lord, Just if I brought all this great disaster, I will bring upon all the good that I promise. Fields will be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation. Without man or beast it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed. In the land of Benjamin and the places of Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country and the cities of the Shephelah and the cities of the Negev for I will restore their fortunes declares the Lord. So just as I kept my word in bringing judgment, I will keep my word in doing them good. He says, in this land that you're saying is a desolation, fields will be bought, I will restore their fortunes. Now, in all honesty, you know, I took some time off and was able to go visit my younger son and his family and my little grandson in Albuquerque and, and I was really glad to go in to see him, but now, I never try to claim that I'm some great man of prayer, but I do pray a lot and I, most of the time I think I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I do it a lot. And as I was around family and friends, I was a little bit, a little bit overwhelmed by the needs of my immediate family, my extended family, friends, acquaintances, and the world.
it just uh, was a little overwhelming. And I was glad to see family, but then I hear about all of the issues, all of the problems, all of the things that happened. One of my aunts died and just on and on. So let's get back to the dirt. What's this miraculous thing about this dirt, this field, this plot of land? The miraculous thing is that the Lord is saying that nothing is too hard for him. He can take out that heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh and write his word on that heart. This piece of dirt is Jeremiah saying that he believes the Lord. In spite of the circumstances, he believes the Lord is able to carry him through this crisis. He will not be able to personally return to this plot of land, but he knows that there is a place where he belongs. He has a homeland. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he is called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. A city. Now, what or where is your field to purchase? What signifies your trust in God? It does not have to be a big thing. It does not have to be earth-shattering. Honestly, for me, sometimes... In my life, it has been nothing more than getting up and making my bed. I remember there are a few times when I was young as a child, and I would have some reason for not wanting to face the day and go to school. And I would, and some, I would give my mom a reason why I couldn't get out of bed and excuses. Now, my parents, if we were honest with them, there was about two times a year where they would just let us take the day off. But most of the time, my mom would look at me very kindly and say something like, Yose, I know. And I'd go on and tell her more. She'd say, Lo siento. I feel for you. And she'd look at me and say, levántase, get up. Primero hacemos su cama. 
first we make your bed. Sometimes in my life and maybe in your life, maybe there have been times when just getting up and making your bed is a victory. Because is anything too hard for God? And in the time that we are living in right now, I know that life can be overwhelming. Sometimes it is just too much. And we feel like we don't know how to pray and maybe that God isn't even hearing us. But what is your field to purchase? Just something to say to God, I believe that nothing is too hard for you. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father God, as we read of Jeremiah and the terrible situation that his world was in at this time, it just seems so out of place that you would ask him to buy a plot of land in enemy territory and without any real value personally to him, it seemed like. But yet, Father, he expressed his hope, his trust, that your promises are true. And Father, we do live in a, in a world right now that has so many things happening, Father, and sometimes it is overwhelming. But in each of our lives, Father, in some way, shape, or form, you're asking us to buy a plot of land. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand in our lives what that means. And that we would express, even in the simplest of terms, that we trust you. Amen.